Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson here for the recap of Vuelta Espana Stage 13 brought to you by our partner LeCole. If you haven't checked out their kit yet, they focus on road performance only and they provide their kits to Bahrain McLaren in the Pro Peloton. And I think Lando Norris, the F1 driver, I think on Instagram I saw him sporting a Bahrain McLaren kit the other day as well. Maybe we can get him on the podcast uh, at a later date, I think someone suggested that on Twitter. But LeCole have been a supporter of the podcast for all through the Giro and now the Vuelta. Benji and I both love wearing the kits. If you want to check them out, www.lecole.cc, link in the show notes and the description. But today was an ITT, and you know how we do ITTs around here. We just do it in, we just say the results because we can't remember the chronological order. The profile is from Muros to Mirador de Ezzaro d'Umbria, 34Ks, and a polarised climb once again, or it's polarised stage, I should say, once again. First uh, tw- 31.5Ks or so are pretty flat, some rolly climbs, but for all intents and purposes, we're talking like 45Ks, 47Ks now, maybe 50 flat couple of intermediate time checks at 12 and 24 and a half and then we have a 1.8k climb to Mirador de Ezzaro at 14.2% average gradient it's telling me and that seems to be the case we've got uh 15 and a half percent for the yeah for the for the middle kilometer it's 16 percent so I don't know where the world defines these climbs they're kind of like uh, this is like Hillbrook Road. If, if Brisbane was ever, Brisbane listeners will know if you did a TT from maybe Upper Brookfield Road out to then um, the end of Savages or no, end of Gold Creek Road went up Hillbrook Road. It's like that. So really steep. Don't know where the world to find these. But the favourites for today, according to Benji's tweets, which once again, eerily accurate, were Roglic Cavagna, Ian Garrison, Rob Stannard. Uh, I don't know about that one. Nelson Oliveira, Will Barter with two paella things, Hugh Carthy, Jonas Aguirre, Van Moer, and Ivo Oliveira with one paella thing. Robert Cavani had three paellas. But it was, yeah, who was <laughs> who was on the top step today, Benji? He's back. Yes, he is. He was wearing a different helmet this time, and I think that's what brought him forward today. Primoz Roglic <laughs> was the winner of today's time trial. It was a time trial where there was a lot of stress at the start, whether he was going to collapse again, because it looked like other favorites were doing just as good, to be honest. And it looked like it was towards the end of the race that he pulled the race towards himself. And in all intents of purposes, I think that he wrote a good time trial today and it secured quite a distance on the competitors that he needed to keep behind him. We said yesterday that we... We're thinking about 30 seconds on Kafi and perhaps one minute, one minute and a half on on Carapaz for Roglic. And it came near that. I think it was 26 seconds on Kafi in the end. And he got a... Let me check to be sure because I don't want to say anything wrong here. He was a... 49 seconds ahead of Carapaz. Yes, 49 on the seconds road. on the road. And the major part of that was happening on the second part because... Obviously, it ends on that climb. That climb actually peaks on 29%, apparently, because at the top it says that if you go down, there's a descent that peaks at 29%. So we didn't see it that well because 
yeah, they switch from rider to rider. But there was a part in there in that second or third kilometer that goes up to 29%. And perhaps that's why these percentages, these averages look a bit more than they actually seem to have been because they climbed up that relatively quickly, I'd say. And perhaps it's because it's a bit more of a, a, a spiky climb in the sense that it's got perhaps 13, 12%, and then one section at 20%, then goes back to 12, 13. It looks like that if I look at the um, the profile that is actually zoomed in on on smaller sections than just one kilometer. And you've got just very steep spikes. And I think that's the the real difficulty on this climb because it's hard to find your rhythm and keep it going on on a climb that switches percentages every every few hundred meters so in general really good ascension by Roglic also the fastest ascension on the road he was ahead of Dan Martin as the fastest climber I'm surprised to see that Dan Martin wrote that last section so fast basically saving himself his fourth place in GC at this very moment because a rider that did disappoint for me was Enric Maas but perhaps I should talk about the actual full results of the ITT first before we dive into anything further. I'll go through some of the preliminary times and we'll build sort of how it was developing. Um, so Will Barter set the quickest times at the first and second intermediate time checks um, ahead of Nelson Oliveira on both of them. Roglic was behind Hugh Carthy on the first intermediate time check by about a second and a half. Carapaz was only four seconds behind Roglic at that 12k time check. Roglic then went in the second time check, a second ahead of Carthy and now 20 seconds, 19 seconds ahead of Carapaz. And, but still, I think 17 seconds behind Will Barter and Nelson Oliveira. And then Roglic obviously did the climb much, much quicker than Barter and Oliveira, setting a time of 46.39, about half a second ahead of CCC's Will Barter, who I believe is out of contract for next year. So that was a real shame, him not winning the stage. Benji, do you have – so I'll read out the top 10. I'll let Benji get the maybe the, the climb times together. But the top 10 were, yeah, Roglic first, Barter a second back, Nelson Oliveira 10 seconds behind Roglic, Hugh Carthy – 25 seconds behind Roglic. Armourail, FTJ Rod, he's been, done quite a good job actually for Godot, I think, on the stage. Godot won. He was in the break with him. Was now a mass is being tested. 40 seconds behind Roglic. Casano, 45 back. Carapaz, 49 seconds behind Roglic on the road. 39 behind on GC. Then Cavagnard, De La Cruz, and Sutherland round out the top 10. Uh, Notable GC candidates outside of the top 10 um, or not their times, I think was, yeah, Martin was like a minute and something back on Roglic, a minute and 29 back. It might be easier if I go to the results now. I'm looking at all the intermediate times, but it's, yeah, sorry. Martin, a minute and 17 behind Roglic and Enric Mas. I'm not sure if you already said his exact time. A minute and 43 back. And also the guy, the man we had on the podcast, Vlasov, 2.17 back. That's, that's not good at all, uh, to be honest. So that's not a great time. Chris Froome, 5 minutes 50 back. How, whether he was going full gas or not, I'm not sure. But have you got, Benji, the uh, the climbing times? Because I, I've got a, a point I'd like to make about Dan Martin. Yes, I've got relative climbing times in the sense that I've got the time between the second intermediate and the finish. Obviously, there's a bit of a flat part there, but 
there is no intermediate at the bottom of the final ascension. So without actually checking on a video how long they climbed over it, I'm pretty sure some other people are going to do that, but I haven't had the time for that, nor the uh, motivation, to be honest. I've got the time between Intermediate 2 and the finish, and Roglic was the best rider there with 16 minutes and 5 seconds. And Dan Martin was second in that and lost only 16 seconds to Roglic. So I think that the majority of the uh, climbing speeds was towards Dan Martin and even Perhaps he climbed similarly to Roglic, knowing that that flat part before the climb that I still count in this second intermediate to finish distance is advantageous to Roglic. So that would mean that on the climb itself, Martin must have been climbing at a relatively similar, well, speed than Roglic was. So what is the point you're trying to make about Dan Martin? Obviously, his flat TT position is dog shit. And he, or he was doing a massive negative split because and it looked visibly bad on the flat section just moving all over the place um but then yeah he i reckon he's done the climb quicker than quicker than roglic i reckon and um the 16 seconds he lost was probably in the flatter section that, that formed a large part of that second intermediate to the final um so it just goes to show these results that you can improve your TT. Like, do you think Benji Carapaz being 49 seconds behind Roglic? Today is a win for Carapaz, in my view. That is a really, really good result for him. Do you think that he's improved? Do you think his TT's improved, Carapaz, to be able to do that, to beat Remy Cavagna by nine seconds? I know there's a steep climb, but still, to come seventh on this stage, I think is shows an improvement from Carapaz. I believe it's a combination of both because you've got... Carapaz that has become better at time trialing. This could be a one-time thing. This could be very consistent in the future. We don't know that. We can't base that off one day of performance. We know that Carfi's overperforming as well compared to his past, and according to Fathers, was training on time trial quite a lot. And we see from the history of Roglic, and I've said this multiple times on the podcast before, I've had people getting triggered by it, but that's, yeah, that's also fun to watch. But um, I believe that Roglic over the last years has focused a lot of, on his climbing as well, obviously, and has become a much better climber than two, three years ago. And as a consequence, also lost a bit of the drive for dominant time trials. Because if you look at three years ago, only that time trial at the end of the tour looked pretty bad. Outside of that, all the rest of his time trials were pretty amazing. Last year as well, he was riding good time trials, but... He was also riding those Grand Tour time trials against competition that is not at top level. He only won that Giro time trial, the middle one, because Campanarts had that bike change issue that um, Lantern keeps laughing about when I bring it up. And uh, in the end, if Campanarts didn't have that bike change issue, Rolich would not have won that time trial, despite it being an uphill time trial. So I believe that we've seen this transition throughout two years now where the time trials of Roglic are slowly but surely moving down. This year it's very different though. I feel like despite winning today, his performance was less than one would expect of Roglic or perhaps his components, his opponents, his competitors. I just combined that word in components. Perfect. His uh, opponents, either they overperform or he underperforms. And I think it's a combination of both, not per se underperforming for Roglic, but Perhaps 
being less good at charm trial as a consequence of being a much better climber because Roglic was not near as dominant in previous years as he is this year in climbing, obviously in Grand Tours. In one-week races last year, perhaps, he was on a similar level in charm trialing as well as he should be because I feel like in one-week races last year, his time trials were pretty on point. And when it comes to Grand Tours, and if it's a time trial in the third week, he slowly but surely loses that drive for it. So either he, over the years, has gotten worse in it a tiny bit because it's clearly enough to win a time trial, or he has the disadvantage of not being that great in time trials towards the end of a Grand Tour. And if you look at the last year's Vuelta time trials, he was winning them. He was winning them comfortably, but it wasn't against competition that you would say, oh, these guys are going to become world championship time trial. Cavagnol was up there, but he was not near as good last year as he is this year. Cavagnol is a time trialist. If you've got Nelson Oliveira also performing well last year, getting fifth on a minute, we can compare that to what was brought today by Oliveira and also Roglic. Thinking about it, Oliveira comes in third on 10 seconds only of Roglic. You could say that the time trial fits Roglic less with the whole flat section at the start, but I'd say the climb at the end should counterbalance that quite easily with the gradients that they go on. So Oliveira, honestly, on paper, really good time trial, and William Barta as well. Barta being a rider that I put in that uh, to Paella thingy on my Twitter because I thought that he could do well because he's been slowly but surely growing. I didn't expect this. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I was perhaps expecting a surprise top five. Getting second is pretty wonderful. Uh, the reason I put Rob Stannard in there, by the way, was because he did well at a GRU23 time trial. But uh, apparently today he didn't really go for it. It was his teammate Edmondson that wrote pretty decent at the start, but he fell through the rankings as the Charm trollists keep going, but in general, do you feel like Roglic did what we expected, or do you think that he was slightly underperforming towards what you expected, or do you expect him to win with like half a minute on a Garfian, a minute on a Carapaz, for example? Uh, I think there's 25 to th- 20 to 25 seconds that aren't there that I thought would be there, but still ultimately got the job done. Um, I know. Everyone's maybe going to focus on the stage win, so our criticism sounds a bit ridiculous, but I'm more, and I think you are too, Benji, more looking at the gaps to his competitors as the yardstick for measuring, not just, so, you know, maybe if, if Prime Garant Thomas or Rowan Dennis or Dumoulin was here today or Wout Van Aert or something, you know, he, he, maybe he loses the time trial by a minute or whatever, that's, okay, fine, that's irrelevant, um, or Barter beats him by 30 seconds, I only care about the gaps to his competitors, and beating Nelson Oliveira by 10 seconds. And I actually think Roglic used to be much better on the flat in the TT. And in, even in the Tour de France ITT, he lost the time in the latter half and on the climb. He lost a lot of lot of time to, say, Port on the climb. So I thought he was going to – I always thought today he was going to do the same time as Carapaz on the climb and Martin and even maybe Carthy because, to be honest – the overall climbing level between the, the, all these guys has been about the same on a pure waspicular basis over a, an extended climb, excluding having teammates, etc. They've pretty much been the same level throughout this Vuelta, except Roglic has had a better kick uh, in the sprint finishes. Um, you know, he's had that 
descent finish, etc. But in terms of like just a watts test across eight minutes or seven minutes, however long the climb was, they're all pretty much neck and neck. But I always thought he's much better in on the flat and a bit of an engine on the flat. And um, it just that first maybe the first half of the flat section. Him being on the same time as Carthy, that was a little bit surprising to me, but still a very, very good performance by Carthy and a very good performance by Carapaz. I think I think Roglic paced this pretty conservatively. Um, he knew he didn't have to, like we knew there was no Pogaccia here, right? So he didn't have to do anything obscene today. He didn't have to do his best performance to go into red with the 30-plus second lead. And I think he went into, he went into the time trial knowing that. Got the job done, 39-second lead on Carapaz. Will it make a difference, him having a 39-second lead versus a minute and 10-second lead? Given that if there's no breakaway tomorrow, I expect him to take a few more bonus seconds too. I'm not sure. I think for Carapaz to win, he's got a oh, – we'll maybe we'll get to our we'll preview in the next couple of days in a, in a second. But, yeah, I think – I think every, all of them are going to be happy. Roglic, Carthy, Carapaz. I mean, GC right now, Roglic first, 39 ahead of Carapaz. Carthy, 47 back. Big gap now to Martin, 1 minute 42 back. An even bigger gap in fifth to Onric Mas, 3.23. Let's talk about Onric Mas and Movistar Benji. <laughs> I hope they get fined. <laughs> what, what were they doing? Like, they started the climb and... Obviously, we knew from beforehand that during the rains, the organizers had put in the jury report that any bike change from a jump trial bike to a road bike must be done in the preset zone on the climb by the uh, race organizers. So they had a bit of a section with a line where the dudes that push the rider can't cross to prevent any uh, any cheating and any any guys that push their riders too long. And what Mars did was, well, he rode past that section and I was like, okay, yeah, he's not going to switch, which to me seems like a horrendous mistake, but I guess we'll give him a chance. We'll give him a chance. He goes around the corner and takes a position, perhaps a clever place to have a bike change because they just start the climb and they are pushed into this break directly. They need to break to try and switch their bike in that zone while you could use that momentum to try and switch in the corner perhaps, and perhaps Mars's idea of switching in the corner instead was a, an actual good idea. The problem is, we don't know if it's allowed. Nobody has a clue. Nobody has a clue if it's an enforceable rule. And Enric Mars decided to, instead of having a bike by the side of the road in the zone, change in that corner with a bike on top of the car. Now, it's real, really confusing whether this is allowed or not, I really don't mind that it happened. If they found a plot hole in the rules that wasn't specified, then I'm all for it because I like that. And <laughs> that's why I kind of find this a funny thing. Now, all in all, despite that happening, I don't think Mars had a good time trial compared to the ones he had all year and in previous years. So all in all, a bad TT, but you have anything to add towards that bike change thing? I mean, it's probably cost him or see the cost or saved him one or two seconds. I think <laughs> the benefit of changing in the better spot is negated by having to take the bike off the back of the car and you're also running the risk of being a foul of some rule you don't know. So, yeah, I think it's dumb either way for them to be doing that. And 
it it'd be kind of mean if they got fined by the commissaires or docked a couple of you know ten seconds or something because he already <laughs> lost a minute forty three <laughs> and he's three minutes twenty three back. And you know I'm not I was defending Lava Star in my ITV sport video, but I thought I did think it was kind of funny what they did in the ITT uh, today. What about Benji with the uh, if you if any of you have watched the ITT in this zone that Benji mentioned, there was a line where the mechanic couldn't keep pushing afterwards like a long jump um like a void i don't even know what the correct term is like a long jump triple jump javelin where if you touch put your foot on that line or across the line it's a foul throw or a jump what was the i don't know if there's any actual punishment for it because i know that will barter's mechanic got pretty close to it (laughs) um there's nothing in the rules about this um so Imagine if Roglic got docked. His Yumba Visma mechanic got pretty close to, got docked 10 to 15 seconds, brought Carapaz within, <laughs> within 25 <laughs> seconds. I mean, we, we waited a little bit. I haven't seen anything on Twitter or anything, so I don't think, and there shouldn't be. It really should make a difference, but we haven't seen anything of that nature. Um, but moving on to the rest of the week, we'll, we'll, preview, we'll preview stage 14 properly at the end, but... Now that we know these gaps after the ITT, I personally think Jumbo Visma thought they were going to be having a minute plus on Carapaz going into this last few stages, and this wasn't the actual plan. And, I mean, if you add up all of Roglic's bonus seconds, etc., he'd be pretty much on the same time as Carapaz. So I don't think there's much difference in their climbing ability, and Carapaz dropped him on Anglaru. But I think there's two stages, Benji, there that they can be damaged. Tomorrow, I think Roglic might take some bonus seconds, but people are always fo- already focusing on stage 17. And because we didn't do a rest day preview, we should probably talk about this. Stage 15, 231Ks. No massive climbs, nothing too bad. Um, do you think all those climbs are too easy for Ineos to try and launch something? I'm more thinking it's a long stage. There could be a moment in that last 50Ks that they could try a, I don't know, team up with Mike Woods and Hugh Carthy and try something. Out of the question or possible? Hmm, it's it's going to be difficult for that to happen, I think. Just in general, Roglic would need bad luck or something to get behind because on these smaller hills, Jumbo would have the team to control anything that happens in the uh, in the peloton. Vingegaard was really good. He might have jinxed Roglic in general by saying this morning that um, unless we fuck up, Roglic wins the wins the Vuelta. But um, <laughs> which is a horrible statement to say if you're not sure about your your uh, your future. But looking at this stage, they could fuck up, but I don't see it happening unless it's an outside factor influencing it. I don't see Roglic collapsing on a hill stage like this. The only difference that yeah, I just don't think Ineos is good enough to do something crazy. And perhaps Garfi might try because, I don't know, it's difficult. I think Garfi might just play the card of having Kovatia to try and drop people. But Kovatia is not enough, I would say, to drop Roglic. So I think you indeed can't look solely to stage 17. But looking at the stage, stages before that, it's going to be pretty tough to, to put pressure to Roglic. So... I don't know. It's 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 generally going to be hard for any competitor to try and uh, put some fire under the legs of Primoz Roglic here because right now he does have a solid gap in 
in GC. Perhaps not the gap that people were expecting, but you've got a gap of 39 seconds on Carapaz, 47 seconds on Garfi. Even with the whole jacket parade on Formigal, he did not lose more than 30 seconds. So, yeah, he's going to need an outside factor to to bash into Roglic to be able to drop him, I think. I think it's going to be really hard to get Roglic out of that red jersey. It's always possible. I've said it before. You said it before. Everything can happen in a Grand Tour, definitely towards the end of a Grand Tour. But it's rather unlikely. Hmm. Looking at, indeed, stage well, 15. Yeah, I don't think 15 is going to be uh, enough. On former goal, he lost 50 seconds to Carthy. So stuff can happen pretty quickly. But yeah, I think this welter is. Uh, I think it's pretty much over, to be honest. Because <laughs> same. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the way they've designed this course, the, the course, there's no. The, the the rider that will be leading in the ITT just is has such a strong position, and all these stages coming up kind of suit Roglic more. They're all the stages he's dominated so far in this welter, midi mountain. Finishes and Covertia. Covertia's got him written all over it. I mean, I don't know the weather forecast. If that's good weather, he'll be winning that stage, unless they let a well, if they let a break go. Sure, but you know, eleven k's at seven percent, nothing crazy. Um, Fake news climb though. It's, uh, yeah, it's got some steeper sectors. Yeah, but he's not been. It's nothing like Anglaru or anything like that. I agree. So, you know, it, it's it's easier to control. Drafting matters more. It's it's really set up to suit Roglic, um, and even that stage fifteen I mentioned, he's better than these guys in a sort of Liège hilly style stage. So again, don't really see any issues for him there. Uh, stage sixteens uh, looks like Milan San Remo just with an additional climb and one hundred and sixty three k's. That's a sprint stage in my view. And then stage 18, or break stage, but no GC action. And then stage 18 is the uh, celebration in Madrid. We don't have 19, 20, 21. We, we've only got five stages left. Um, my math serves me correctly. And, yeah, I just I don't see uh, falling short of a mechanical or something or a crash. I think this welter is uh, very much Primoz Roglic's to lose. And that's what I think Laflamme Rouge was saying on Twitter the other day when he saw the Tour de France 2021 route uh, announcement. And we, we will be doing a podcast after the welter's done in depth analysing that route, don't you worry. But, you know, we'll wait for the welter to be done before we do that. We're hitting you with a lot of content all the time. But one of the things LFR was saying is that the way courses are designed it really makes mechanicals and crashes matter a lot more because the time gaps are so small. And I guess the jacket thing in the bad weather, I mean, it's good that I guess Rolich lost a lot of time in the sense that that's not something where I feel sorry for him. But if he has a crash or a mechanical, a puncture, you know, he can lose a 35 to 40 second gap. And all carts are equally. Carthy could lose second on GC because he has a puncture, and there's really no stages in the last week to gain 30 seconds back. Like realistically, there's no opportunity to do that. So that's sometimes an issue with the stage. I, I really do wish stage 17 they'd made a I'm not you know, a 200 kilometer 
proper mountain stage. Um, I think they've made a mistake with the design there because then we'd really be thinking, okay, Roglic has been dropped by Carthy and, and uh, Carapaz and they've actually put genuine time on him in Angleroo and on Flo Magal. Something could actually happen there. This is not over. Um, but, hey, nothing is over till it's over. But, yeah, do you think – what do you think, Benji? What do you give Roglic probability of winning? I've got it at, like, 90% right now. I've got it at about 95%. If there's one spot where I see a potential mechanical happening, like written in the stars for somebody, it's in the Covatia stage. You've got a bit of a cobble part into a city with about with about 18 kilometers to go, just for the historical sakes of that city that they're doing it. And, um, well, if there's a cobble part in a stage, it, it is destined to have at least one person that punctures on it. Port was on that gravel section in the Tour de France, and I think there's going to be someone, someone that has to puncture on that. But I hope it's nothing nothing important, perhaps like a random domestique of Jumbo to try and make the last two kilometers better. That would be a... That would be pretty cool. But all in all, I just don't find um, Kovatia too threatening to Roglic indeed, like you said. No. So I think if anything has to happen, it has to happen outside of Kovatia stage. And looking at the profile, it's going to be really hard to force that for a team like Ineos. And they're going to need something special to make it happen. And I hope that something arrives that makes it entertaining. I don't hope bad luck towards Roglic for sure, because... He's in a position where he deserves to be in. And as a consequence, I will not be um, wanting him to have a mechanical or anything to try and make the race more entertaining. But I do hope that some factor in the race, hopefully nothing related to bad luck, can influence the race into a, an entertaining final uh, few days. That's what I've got in my mind. But all in all, looking at the stage of tomorrow, because uh, let's take a look at who we've got as our picks for this one. We've got a stage that has the first half, just small hills, ups and downs and ups and downs, nothing categorized. In the middle, we do have one climb that is basically the same size of all the climbs that came before, but it's suddenly, well, categorized, 3.8%, so nothing major, 8.8 kilometers. But it looks like it's a bit of a fake news climb, although, yeah, first kilometer is 9.9% average, and the average of the last six kilometers is 2%. <laughs> Why wouldn't they just categorize the first three Ks? <laughs> oh my God. That the is not a climb. That is a kilometer. <laughs> <laughs> that is the uh, Alto de Escairon. And then we go downwards, have an intermediate sprint that nobody really looks at. And then we've got the Alto de Guitarra. And um, well, that's 3.9% average. So that's pretty great. We've got kilometers of 1.7% in there. So we love these climbs. Absolutely love it. Then they go down and with about let's say 50k to go they arrive on this plateau section of like 30 kilometers 20 kilometers i'd be interested to see if there's any opportunities for echelons most likely not but you never know i'm just looking for entertainment in these stages then we start the final proper climb of the day the alto de abelaira well i'm saying proper climb but it's 4.2 percent average so yeah it's got kilometers of 3.8 3.7 3.9 one kilometer of five so that enlightens it a bit, but it pretty much shows that if you survive this climb and then you've got one steep hill in the end, and I'm saying steep, despite not knowing the gradient and I can't find it directly, so I'm afraid I can't tell you right now. I'll put it on my Twitter if I find the actual gradient on the last kilometer. But I think that this is the perfect stage for um, 
the man, the myth, the legend, Aramburu, no. the, um, the hill stage guru. <laughs> and um, he's got climbs of 4% then. He has to get over that because I believe in it. Alex Aramburu or Freyla. And I think it's going to be Aramburu because Freyla is going to be going to be an absolute failure tomorrow. Freyla is not making it. And therefore, his teammate Aramburu will have to take over and bring it home for Astana. So that's my winner for stage 14. It has to happen. I think there's going to be another breakaway with Guillaume Martin. He's going to be going for more KOM points. If there's a break, the sort of people I expect to be winning would be, I don't know, Freyla would get in the break, Benji. I mean, Wellens, Aronsman again, the Sunweb boys will be trying to get multiple riders in the breakaway. Martin will be there, obviously, trying to get KOM points, as I said, Cavagna even, unless they leave him in the bunch to attack late. Out of the group, 1.1K is at 6.5%. We, we're counting out Sam Bennett, aren't we? Um, I am at least. For this stage, I'm going with Roglic. Yeah, <laughs> Roglic again because I think you want more bonus seconds. So, yeah, Roglic or uh, who's another quick man? Maybe Dion Smith. It's a little bit easier than mm. the, the uphill sprint that Roglic won before. So, uh, yeah, Roglic or, or Dion Smith, Bagioli as well will be up there. I have to look at the the odds. So that's not actually betting advice because I don't know the odds yet. Um, to be fair, I that's think... Just, that's just who I think will be up there. Yeah, go on. I think that uh, we should not look past Bennett so easily. These climbs are 4%. We're, we're saying it. I just mean the finale. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, you just said it. I didn't read the profile correctly. 1.1 kilometer at 6.5%, but... He's won on these kind of finishes already last year in Toledo, and that was not with a crash behind him, unlike in Burgos. So if Quickstep controls this race and just keeps him up there on every single one of these hills, because we said it, it's 4%, 5% these climbs, and there's one peak of 9%, and the rest of that freaking climb yeah, is, yeah, is it's 1%. Like, it's all up and down. The first half is all up and down. I believe in it. I'm going to play a Joker card, and I'm going to say that Sam Bennett survives and wins the stage. I don't put is no more. <laughs> All right. I'm going to say he's not going to come in the top 10. Okay. <laughs> Just because I think Carapaz, Martin, Carthy, they're all going to be fighting hard. I think there'll be GC teams leading it out quite hard. Magnus Court, I think, as well. I think this yeah, suits, good point. as you said, Aaron Baru, Magnus Court, and Dion Smith a little bit more than the other day. But, yeah, I just... I don't know. I don't. I don't see it for for Bennett. I think he's going to clean up uh, stage sixteen and eighteen though later on. But I'm not sure if we we've said a lot of names. My pick for the stage is uh, Dion Smith slash Primoz Roglic, uh, and I think Benji went with Sam Bennett, which is yes. yeah. We'll see how that. Although goes. I do want to say that mm-hmm. I so much like your court pick that you said earlier, but. I guess I'm stuck with Bennett now. <laughs> also, will they be applying the three-second rule tomorrow? Do we know if this is an expected bunch sprint? Because that will actually affect EF strategy because if it is not a mass sprint, they will be riding 100% to keep Carthy in contention next to Roglic. And if it is the three-second rule, apparently they will be leading out Magnus Court. That's what they said they would have done differently the other day. I don't know what this is categorized as. Uh, we don't have the road book just open on our phones at all times. We'll have to check that. 
make sure you check. Benji might put that in his paella tweet tomorrow. Um, <laughs> if he finds that okay, out, we'll probably well. just ask for Flam Rouge because <laughs> he does have the right <laughs> book open at all times. Uh, but that's our recap of stage 13, the preview of stage 14, and a little bit of what we expect for the stage for the rest of the stages to come. The markets are not so bullish on Roglic as we are. They're giving Roglic a 70% chance of winning the Vuelta. Benji and I think that's quite low um, given the, the stage profiles to come. I think it was a pretty exciting ITT once again today. I'm glad they all are pretty close in contention, but I do think those gaps are a little bit of an illusion. How, how have you rated, given that we didn't have the recap potty for the rest day, Benji, how, how have you rated this Vuelta so far for excitement? Mm, I feel like the first week was the most exciting for me. I feel like the stages that were not necessarily looking like stages that will explode were exploding more than in the second week. I am not overly disappointed by the second week, but I did expect more from Langleru. Despite it being quite a great stage, I just... I, just, I rewatched 2013 one yesterday, and oh my god, another heartbreak of Nibli again, but still, it, it was such a good stage, and it had tension from... 6.5 to 7 kilometers from the top, while in this stage it was closed down to like 5.5 by Vingegaard. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a, a middle way street. I don't know what to say, really. I think that it's been a good Grand Tour. I think that I'm also just kind of feeling it, that it's coming towards the end of the season and that we've had so many races and I might be getting a bit saturated, honestly, which is a horrible thing to say, loving cycling, but... With so many races in such a short period, it has influenced my hype towards the last week of this Vuelta, to be honest. I have no idea. I agree with you. I have no idea why ASO announced the Tour de France route right now. It has to be the worst possible time for them to announce it. Like, we are flat out covering the rest of this Vuelta, which overlapped in the first week with the Giro. And everyone has just had, we're on the back end, everybody, of just three months straight of just non-stop cycling um and they've announced a tour route in the last week of the world so it made no sense to me why not wait till the end of november when everyone's had a couple of weeks rest to yeah have your own slot where you're not competing with anything or have it ready and announce it in the last week or the day after the the uh in in paris they should maybe unveil it the day after paris build off that momentum there yes. i don't really understand their announcement now yeah um, but, but um outside of that announcement we also had some uh, off-topic announcement i would like to throw in the conversation a tiny bit here we've heard from Willerflitz, which is a dutch newspaper that they're actually uh the uci is looking to suspend uh Grunewagen for nine months which means since august so until the start of May next year. And obviously that's an unprecedented thing, I think, that someone gets uh, suspended for the cause of a crash. I don't think that has happened too often in cycling and perhaps hasn't happened enough yet. I'm a bit in between whether this is a good decision or not, knowing that it's based solely on the consequences of the crash and the fact that Ryaboshenko did something similar last year and caused a similar crash in the final sprint with also an injured rider and he didn't even get relegated in that race. So it, it just shows the inconsistency of the UCI, but I'd be a bit hypocritical to counter that 
that decision now, considering I'm always of the opinion that whatever inconsistency in the sees in the past, you can't counter a current decision saying, oh, they didn't punish it in the past, so they shouldn't do it today. I'm against that. So saying it like this would be hypocritical for me. And therefore, I'm more for the fact of just get it all consistent in the future as a consequence of this. But I'm also scared of where the limits lie towards having this happen. And when does it become punishable punishable of a rider to have caused the crash? And when is it not punishable? And it's a dangerous precedent, despite being a good decision for me. I kind of, I don't know, somewhat in that area. I mean, I think if Cronenwegen gets nine months, Elisa Longo-Borghini should get three months for trying to put Van Vleuten into the barriers um, when they were riding for second and third in the world champs. She received effectively no punishment at all. So, yeah, there's it shouldn't be fully outcomes-based. Um, I think it, it is a dangerous precedent, but ultimately I thought Gronewegen should also get a very, very heavy sanction for what he did uh, as well. So in a vacuum, I don't disagree with him being suspended for, I thought up to a year would have been fine too, to be honest. Um, because I, I, have a contra- I have a hot take, <laughs> and I think Vila Flitz might have deleted that article, but it was pretty well, they left it up for a fair while. I don't know what their source was. Maybe they didn't think it'd be such a spicy topic, but uh, I think sprint line deviations are worse than doping. So that's my hot take. I've said that a few times, maybe only privately, but I think, they're cheating, but they also endanger your other comp- your your colleagues and can threaten their life. So, doping only endangers yourself generally, except indirectly. Maybe it creates a culture where other people feel compelled to dope, and that also harms their health. But directly, you can be endangering other people, and it's also cheating to to get a win. Same same as doping, cheating to get a win. Um, just because it's one is premeditated, I guess, and one is on the bike in the heat of the moment, so maybe that's why we don't think of them as alike, but I think of them as closer to alike than maybe others do, um, particularly because there's a real safety aspect to it as well. Uh, and we've been at least, I'm, I'm proud to say, Benji, we've been consistent, and people are probably sick of us harping on about it. We've been consistent in every single sprint where one of these happens. We have called it out since the inception of the podcast, even in that um, AG3 Ducks, the Brugge de Pan, was it? Or was it one of the the, the women's race where Kopecky yes. got chopped or Julian Dor chopped someone? Um, we called that out straight away. You, We said it on, on Twitter, etc. Um, but, yeah, it's, it is a bit, well, I don't know what power the UCI actually has to suspend somebody like that, really. And, and maybe getting into that, more news, re-UCI powers, and we'll probably discuss this more at length in the off-season, off and I'm probably going to bring a video or write an article about this. The riders have created a new union, or someone's created a new union called the Riders. I should probably get the facts right if we're actually reporting news. Uh, do you know what they're actually called, Benji, the new union? The Riders Union, and it was created with okay. quite a few riders and ex-riders. I know uh, personally Steph Clementa worked on it, and that was a huge force behind the creation of this. Um, basically, it is because in the past we've obviously spoken about the protests, we've spoken about CPA and so forth, 
And all our conclusions came down to the communication and the issues of the CPA being a, a large cause of all the trouble. And that is one of the reasons that the Riders Union is stepping up to try and become a better version of that CPA, to try and take on the issues of the CPA. And I think that's the majority of what they are trying to do. And um, I guess we'll find out what they're going to do and if that's going to be all right. They've got a Twitter account if you want to follow it. It's at the Riders Union. And um, I think they're going to post there quite often. It's looking like they're pretty social media savvy people. So I'm not worried about that communication side of it. I think Luke... Uh, Eisinger, I'm not sure who, who he is, Benji. Yes. He's involved in it as well in creating it. Um, it. The Riders' Union, from my perspective, looks very much to be the Scandinavian cyclists and also the people creating it as well, ex-Scandinavian or Dutch-Belgian cyclists. The Twitter account is even already followed by the Belgian Cycling Federation, I think, and... The CPA is seen as uh, like an Italian, I think Italian, French, Spanish preferred union. It's got Gianni Bugno as the, the head of the CPA. I'm no, not a big fan of the CPA. I've got to go and write a proper, I haven't collected my thoughts properly about this and the aims of the writers' union, etc. cetera. Um, I am in, in principle supportive of a proper union and I don't think the CPA is that. I don't think it's an effectively functioning union. That being said, if the Riders' Union is merely a collection of Dutch and Belgian cyclists and some Scandinavian ones, and they don't really have a, a, a large, a proper quorum, then I'm not sure that's going to be very effective as a breakaway union either. Um, and they might have been better off spending more time developing some broader support. Um, but they're running one of their platforms is the One Rider One Vote policy for. Uh, the CPA president and on various things at the moment voting is kind of like the UN is I mean talking about other dysfunctional uh, institutions um, <laughs> votes are provide sort of votes are on like a nation base so you you vote in your nation's CPA representative I think or something and then your nation gets to vote on issues something like that I don't know it doesn't it doesn't work as I said, I haven't collected my thoughts on it properly, um, and I'll, I'll write them down. I'll put them in a video. It's long awaited because there's been a, it's a hot topic. We had the protest the other day, which we didn't even cover because it was a bit of a joke. Read the red jersey stuff. We had the protest at Morbenia, which wasn't a joke, but, um, and we discussed that properly. So there's this stuff has been reoccurring, and um, it's going to continue. This is going to continue to be a story. The Writers' Union is like these people didn't just create a Twitter account yesterday, right? They've been developing this in the in the, the background for quite a while, but we don't really know the extent of their reach uh, just yet. I don't think they really put out a mandate yet. Um, but we're, I think, in all fairness, in the off season, I'm going to reach out where Benji, as as he said, has a relationship with Steph Clement. We'll get him on to the podcast if he wants. The platform is open. To anybody in the CPA, I've been I've just shit on you. But if you that being said, if you want to come on the podcast and discuss things, the platform is open to anybody in the CPA. Likewise, in the UCI and in the Riders Union, or also any CPA representative riders or riders involved in this platform is open to discuss or put forward your side of the story, etc. Um, we're not really affiliated with anybody. So I guess we're fair in that sense, Benji, because we because we talk to nobody 
we're fair. <laughs> Although, <laughs> so maybe that's the best place to leave it as. Um, lots of stuff going on. Hope you enjoyed the Vuelta Stage 13 ITT. I thought it was pretty good to watch and looking forward to this last week of the Vuelta. Thanks to Lacole for supporting the podcast. Check them out at www.lacole.cc and we'll see you tomorrow.